So our text this morning is Acts chapter 7, verses 17 through 22. We are carefully making our way through Stephen's sermon. This is an intentionally slow part of our sermon series um, because I want to just, I want to try to mine out as much as we can from this sermon for us on our behalf. So let's look at, I'm going to back up to last week's text and I'm going to read from verse 9 through verses 20 to through verse 22. This is Stephen talking to the leaders in Israel, in Jerusalem, in the capital city. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction. And our fathers could not find food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. Verse 17, but as the time of promise grew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. And there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born. He was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, which has been so clearly preserved for us through the centuries and even millennia. Lord, and as it comes to us today here in Smith Falls in March of 2019, Lord, it holds uh, um, as great a power and sway as it ever has, Lord. It is as true today as the day that it was written. Lord, it was true before it was written because these are your thoughts and your words. And so we come to it with, I pray, open hearts and open minds to receive instruction from the living God. Lord, would you be among your people as your word is preached? And would you, as Revelation teaches, would you have Christ walk among us, Lord? As the written word speaks of the living word, may he be in our midst, in our presence. We're so grateful that we can pray this boldly, Lord, without fear. Because Christ has cleansed us from our sin and made us a people when we were not a people. So God, I pray that you would have your way. I pray you would sanctify us by your truth. I pray you would prepare us. I pray you would exhort, encourage us, and comfort us, and challenge us, Lord. Pray that you would make us greater disciples of your Son, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. So our context this morning is the book of Acts. It's chapter 7. There's been great revival, spiritual revival, taking place first in Jerusalem. After Jesus ascended, 
He went into heaven and then he sent his Holy Spirit to the apostles, remember? And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke in tongues. They had the Spirit rest on them as if a flame. And they spoke in the national tongues of all those who were visiting Jerusalem at that time. And there was the, the, the birth of the church, the birth of the institutionalized church and the empowered church. Right? Jesus said to the apostles, don't even bother doing anything or going anywhere until the Holy Spirit is there. So there's been revival, spiritual revival in Jerusalem. In fact, it's been the long-awaited. Peter told us from the book of Joel in chapter 2 in Acts, he said, this is what God has long promised. You should have been waiting for this. You should have been expecting this. You shouldn't have been confused or lost because the prophet Joel talked about it. He said, in those last days, I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. And this is it. This is what you're seeing. And so, friends, we are now living in those last days where the Spirit has been given to God's people for the ministry and for the purpose of God's kingdom, the advance of his kingdom. So those are the days that we are living in. And the religious leaders in Jerusalem were not thrilled about this because all it did was increase the fame of Jesus Christ. The name of Christ is, is the power behind this salvation, right? He is the Lord over the church. And so the leaders who had rejected and killed Jesus are now not thrilled that his name is being further perpetuated, all right? So the church is flying in the face of those who hated Christ. And so Stephen is the preacher who's before us. He was uh, a Jew, and, and he was converted to Christ, and he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He used to be a table waiter. He used to help distribute food for the widows. And God had called him into a ministry of prophecy and preaching, and the leaders didn't like what he was doing, and they called him into like a little court session, and they cross-examined him, and they said, you have been saying that Moses is going to be, you're going to change the custom of Moses, and, and you said that Jesus is going to destroy our temple. Now, if that were true, um, then it would be a terrible crime against God, right? God's temple had been set up in Israel, and so they were saying, well, we need to defend the temple, and now what Stephen is doing, he's showing them why. When they think that they're preserving the temple and Moses, they're missing the point. Stephen is now before them. He's reteaching their own history to them. He's teaching the history of Israel to the leaders in Israel as if they don't know it. But why he's doing this is so that he will make clear to them exactly who Jesus Christ is. Because the history of Israel is the historic preparation for the ministry of Jesus Christ. We cannot miss that in the Bible. We will be confused Christians. We will have, we will have very little understanding of the vast majority of the words in our books if we don't understand that the Old Testament is the historic preparation for Jesus Christ himself. So that's Stephen's goal with the leaders. He's saying, look back at your own history, and I'm going to show you why you missed the point. So that's our goal. When we look at the history of Israel, we want that to be our goal, that we would understand how the history of Israel speaks to and reveals and prepares us for the ministry of Christ. What he's doing, and I want to introduce a term to you, is called the redemptive historic arc of Scripture. That's a way of reading the Bible, the historic redemptive arc. All that is to say is that the history is the meaning. The history is what God was doing. When you look at the whole Bible, the whole story from one end, the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation, is the redemption of mankind. The beginning 
of the Bible has man rebelling against God in his perfect paradise. The end is man reunited with God in perfect paradise. So what happens in the middle? God fixes the problem. That's the historic redemptive arc. It just means to look at history as the unfolding revelation of God's redemption. So when we read the stories, we can actually see God enacting redemption for his people. It's the goal of recorded scripture. So Jacob's family. Jacob, who had been renamed Israel, entered Egypt as a family of 75 people. We saw that in the text. Because there was a famine. That was last week, right? There was a famine. They were starving. They were going to die if they didn't go to Egypt. There, they find out that the son that they were sold into slavery ended up climbing the ladder in Egypt and becoming ruler, prime minister over all of Egypt. And he was, in fact, their salvation because he interpreted the dream of Pharaoh about famine. He was able to prepare for the famine and have enough food to last through the famine, which is why all the nations came to Egypt to get food, okay? So, so Jacob renamed Israel, goes with his family, and they settle there because their, his son was a, basically a political big shot in, in Egypt. And, and the Bible tells us that he had their choice of all the best of Egypt. They said, hey, your family, give them the best land, give them the best food, take care of them. They had sort of friends in high places. Israel settled in Egypt and his family. And then we're told in the text that Israel grows in population. They start multiplying. Wives, children, grandchildren, Kind of like what's happening here at Evergreen. Lots of kids, right? And so they're multiplying. And as Israel grows in population, verse 17, as the time of promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased in number in Egypt. So as Israel grows in population, we see both God's promise taking shape and his judgment bearing out in history. And that's, this is part of the historic redemptive arc that I want to show you this morning as revealed in this passage. That God's promise is taking shape and his judgment is bearing out in history. Which is why, yep, there it is. God, promise keeper, and judge. Okay, that's what's revealed to us here. This is what we want to get to know God a little bit better. And this is what this text tells us. So number one in your outline, God's promises are sure. He's the promise keeper. He's not a promise breaker. He's a promise keeper. Verse 17 tells us that the moment for the promise to Abraham was approaching. That's pretty cool because God had made a promise to Abraham long before this is taking place. Abraham is actually dead at this point. He's not even alive anymore. And yet God remembers his promise to him and says the time is coming. God's promises are sure. They are fixed in history in a certain date. God looks at the calendar and says, the day that I promised is approaching. Therefore, things are going to start taking place. God's promises assure their content, and they also assure their timing, which I find very opposite of me. Usually when I make a promise, it's because I don't know when I'll be able to fulfill it, right? It's because it's I don't know when I'll be able to do it, but I just make a promise. Yes, we will do that, kids. And I've learned, don't, don't make a promise to win that you do not intend to execute in a timely fashion. She's like the family lawyer. Okay? You only tell when what you fully mean, which, I mean, I'm glad I have a kid who keeps me to that standard. Shoot, of course we should all be like that, but God is not like that. He doesn't make a promise because he doesn't know when he can do it. And I'll get to that. 
God makes a promise precisely because he knows the day, he knows the hour, he knows how it's going to happen, he knows who's going to be involved. This promise was first mentioned in Acts 7. It's in the same sermon, right? It's fresh in their ears. 7.5 says this, To Abraham he went out from the land of his forefathers, and after his father died, God removed him from there into the land which you are now living, and he gave him no inheritance, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him. So this promise in particular for Abraham wasn't fully fulfilled until after he was dead. Does that mean God broke his promise? No. He promised him as a possession and to his offspring, even though two things, he had no child and he had no inheritance in it. He had no title deed to the land and he had no kids. And yet he promised him, you're not only going to own this land, but this land is going to be full of your children. Which is why the story of Abraham's son Isaac is so dramatic. Because in order for God's promise to come true to Abraham, he's got to have a kid. No adoption. No surrogate mother. A child from him and his wife. And they both think, that's insane, God. We're both 100 years old. How are we going to have a kid? And God says, am I God or am I God? He says, look at the stars in heaven. That's how many children you're going to have, Abraham. I'm digressing a little bit. But this promise was first mentioned in Acts 7-5 so that the people would occupy the land and that they would, it would be his own family. And so we, we learn this neat thing about Abraham is that he instructed that he would be buried there as did Joseph when he died in Egypt. Both of these figures in Israel said, I believe God's promise. So even though I died outside of fully seeing it, I want my bones to be taken there. I want to be buried there. Abraham bought a little grave. It's all he owned. He bought a grave with his own money and said, I want to be buried there. That's, that's my family's little inheritance right now. And so Joseph said the same thing. He said, when I die, don't bury me in Egypt. In Exodus chapter 13, we see Moses much later on say, Hey, we got the bones of this guy, Joseph, our forefather. we got to bring them with us because he was looking forward to the promise of God. And so Abraham believed that. And the point here is obvious to the leaders. Even though Abraham and Joseph both died outside of seeing the promise fulfilled, God clearly fulfilled the promise because where they are right now is the land that God promised to the forefathers, right? He said it right in the beginning. When they first challenged him, Stephen said this, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, Go out from your land and, in, and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. And then he went out. And he says to the leaders, This is the land in which you now live. So what he's saying is, you descended from Abraham and God clearly fulfilled his promise to Abraham because you are here now. You are the beneficiaries of God's promise to Abraham. That ought to be very humbling, shouldn't it? Right? You are the beneficiaries. You guys didn't traverse the wilderness. You guys didn't struggle with infertility, barrenness, and old age when you were promised a child. And yet here you are in the land of promise as Abraham's children so the point should not be lost in the leaders. What does that tell us? That history travels in accordance with God's plan. History literally contours itself to make sure that God's plans are fulfilled because God is the Lord of all history. And so two things indicate the coming of this promise. What are they? Number one, the population begins to increase in Egypt of the Israelites. Sorry, at the time they were just known as Hebrews. They weren't a nation called Israel yet. They were Hebrews. 
Their population began to increase. This is an indication of God's promise, right? He said that you will have many descendants. And so if your family tree is a little bit stunted, you only got one kid here or there, you don't see much population growth, that's a problem. So number one, the population begins to increase. Number two, what else was part of this promise to Abraham? God spoke to this effect in verse 6 in chapter 7. God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners, which means travelers, in a land that belonged to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. This is God's promise to Abraham. I'm going to fulfill your family. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you a land. But you're going to be slaves for 400 years first. This is part of God's promise to Israel. So the population begins to grow, and then Israel, um, Egypt takes notice. The king of Egypt takes notice, and he begins to mistreat them. The scriptures uh, say that he dealt shrewdly with our race, which means he took advantage of them. He began to force them into labor, and he forced our fathers to expose their infants that they would not be kept alive. Can you imagine living in a nation where you are forced to give up your newborn baby to a wicked king? So they are badly mistreated. Israel was badly mistreated by the Egyptians. The Egyptians robbed them of their vocation, their freedom, and they also robbed them of their biology, the freedom of their reproduction. Interestingly enough, today we call the the industry of death in reproduction is, is known as uh, reproductive rights. Isn't it ironic here that we see the biblical traces of infanticide are the marks of slavery, not freedom? So God made a promise to Abraham. Abraham was long dead by the time this promise even began to really take shape. But do you know what that tells us? It's that the promise is upheld by a sovereign God. The promise doesn't depend on the one who receives it. God's promises are sure because he makes them. God makes a promise and so he fulfills it. You know, there are, there are kind of six... So in, in biblical language, we call these covenants. It's a, these covenants take place all through the scriptures. And I have identified about six covenants I want to make you aware of. There's six major covenants in the Bible. I found five from people who are smarter than me, so it's possible that there are only five, but I think there are six, and the first one, I think, begins with Adam and Eve. God puts them in a garden. He makes a covenant with them. He says, you may eat of everything. You may enjoy all the good that I gave you, but if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, on that day, you will surely die. Now, that's a covenant. That's a covenant. There are blessings for obedience, and there are cursings for disobedience. So what do they do? They eat. And what happens? They suddenly realize that they, they get the knowledge they wanted all right. But it's not a knowledge that frees. It's a knowledge that enslaves them to sin. So that's kind of like a covenant of works. If you do this, you'll die. If you don't do this, you'll live. It's a covenant of works. In Noah, there's a second covenant. That's a covenant of nature. Dave just opened our service reminding us of that, that the seasons are part of God's nature covenant to Noah. He said, when you see the rainbow in the sky after the flood, you will remember that I will never destroy the earth again by water. I will never cover the whole earth in water again. And as long as you are on the earth, the seasons will change. That's part of that covenant. 
It's a covenant of the reliability of nature. So it's a covenant of, in nature. Then we have Abraham. We were reminded of this. What did, what did Abraham receive? He received a covenant, the Abrahamic covenant they called. They called it, and it was the promise of a nation. That was the promise of a nation, that he would have descendants, and they would occupy a great land, the covenant of nationhood. Then we have Moses, who we're studying this morning. We're not going to get to the law this morning, but Moses received the covenant of the law, the Ten Commandments on stone. Okay, that's the covenant of the law. And when, they come, when Moses comes down from the mountain and the people enter the covenant with God and they promise that they're going to obey the law, right? I don't know if you've read that part of the Bible, but Israel thought, oh yeah, we're definitely going to do this. We're definitely going to follow the law. Um, that did not work. It did not turn out that way. And mankind has never been able to enter that covenant with God and succeed. We have always failed at our end of that covenant. The covenant of the law. Then we have David. David who wrote most of the Psalms. What did David receive? He received the covenant of the throne. God said to David, you are going to have one of your sons. I will establish his throne forever. Okay, David had a son named Solomon. And Solomon built a temple. Okay, Solomon established a reign and built a temple for God. And this is where Stephen is going with this, right? It all brings it back to the, to the temple that the Israelite leaders here are accusing Stephen of blaspheming. So it comes back to the temple in the message because God has made one yet greater covenant than all of these. All of these are made by God with a pledge. None of the fulfillment of these promises depended on the person who received it. None of the fulfillment of any of these promises depended on the person who received it. God executes his promise regardless of our failure. God's promises are sure. And I just want to highlight a couple passages that remind us of this in our New Testament. Titus chapter 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and in their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in the hope of listen to this, of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the commandment of God our Savior. God had promised this, the riches of these etern this eternal life before the ages began. 2 Timothy 13, I just quoted, If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. God's promises are sure. And as we see them unfolding in Egypt, we have to recognize that his promises are taking place with unstoppable dominance. There was no regime in history. There was no leader. There was no failure of men. There's nothing in human history that can break God's great promises. That has tremendous implications for you and me, my friends. Number two, God is a judge. I'm going to tell you about those at the end, by the way. God is a judge. Number two, God is a judge. We can't miss this. God, who is busy keeping his promises to his people, does not lose track of what's happening in the world. Okay, he doesn't forget the evil stuff that's going around. God is not so busy handing out free stuff that he forgets all of the evil that's going on in the world. I think often we, we can get an unbalanced view of God. God is promise keeper and he is judge. 
This promise contains a sad season for Israel. What happens? He said, you're going to be slaves for 400 years to this pagan nation. Now, interestingly, when God first makes this promise to Abraham, he doesn't mention which nation it's going to be. He says, whatever nation puts them in bondage, I will judge. I'll judge them. But I find that very instructive because if God had told Abraham it's going to be Egypt, Abraham probably would have written it down and said, by the way, don't ever go to Egypt. It's not going to end well there. Because what happened? Egypt was the only place they could go get food, right? They had to go or they would die. So look how God even works in his prophecy and through history. He is bringing about his promises. So Abraham didn't know what nation. He was like, I don't know. At some point, some nation is going to enslave us for 400 years. And it was Egypt because they had settled there. And so God's promises, this is amazing, they take place in real space and real time with real rulers and real weather and real everything else that goes on. Who could control all those elements to make sure your promises come true? But God, who orders all things after the counsel of his will. And so he said, I'm going to judge them. Whatever nation to which they will be in bondage, I will judge, says God. I will judge them. I will judge them. This nation will not get away with this evil treatment of people, killing of babies. So Egypt's new king, he arises. He knows nothing about Joseph. It's been a long time. He's never heard of Joseph, who did great things for Egypt. He saved Egypt from extinction, very likely. So the favor that Jacob's family once had in Egypt disintegrates because political seasons can change like that, can't they? The tax credit you thought you, you, know, you would, could count on or the baby bonus you had, governments change, things change in a hurry. We have very shallow representations of that here. Imagine if you're um, Joseph's family, if you're Israel here, if you're the Hebrews, and suddenly this king arises and he's never heard of the good things that your family did for his nation. And guess what else? This king is weak and he's insecure. And so he orders that all the male babies be killed. Real tough guy. Real strong grip on authority there, isn't it? He's scared. He's scared because Israel is starting to multiply. And instead of having this great nation within a nation or this great cooperation between their peoples, he orders that their males be killed because males become political leaders. Males become uh, a standing army. So he says, I'm just going to wipe out all the males. I'm going I'm to cripple them. I'm going to cut off their strong arm in their infancy. What an evil, evil violation of life, regardless of whether it's God's people or another people. This is not because it's the Hebrews that this is so heinous. This is an awful act of a pagan nation, which incidentally, any nation which sees man as its highest authority will always resort to violence and evil in order to perpetuate their kingdom. Always. Every great civilization that was not founded recognizing that God is the ultimate law has resorted to violence and evil to perpetuate its kingdom. We see it here in Egypt. They had no recognition of God. They just had to preserve. I mean, when you look at the Pharaoh's tombs, do you think that they had a sense that there was life after death in any meaningful way? They were buried with their gold chariots and their stuff and their mummified animals. They were like, I'm just going to bring it all with me. Anyone who knows God knows that's ridiculous because the greatest treasure of all time exists after we die. 
We're in the presence of God. What on earth do we need a gold chariot for? This is a nation that saw man as the pinnacle of authority. And so killing babies was nothing if it meant that it was preserving the longevity of their empire. There's a greater good, right? Human life? Oh, no. Not in exchange for our kingdom. We also see it in Herod's time when Jesus was born. Exact same thing. Jesus was known to the wise men as the king of Israel. Well, guess who occupied the political title of king of Israel at that time? Herod. So what does Herod do? He orders for the death of every male under two years old to try to wipe out the possibility that this Christ, that this new king of Israel would rise to power and usurp him, being totally ignorant of the reality that Jesus is a heavenly king. He didn't go to overthrow thrones and have little piddly little empires on earth. And so Herod resorts to this great, this great violence, this great evil. And sadly, my friends, we're seeing a culture of death evolve in Canada. As the church has backed away from declaring Christ as the ultimate king, we see a culture of death growing. We see it in the States as well. We're far ahead of them, but we're seeing it in both nations. We're seeing an increased culture of death where the greatest political victories right now are celebrated in accordance with who is allowed to be killed and when. Both the elderly and the young are both fair game. We have authority over life on both of those spectrums. And you know what? In both cases, it's creeping into the middle. We've gone from abortion at six weeks to abortion at 20 weeks to abortion at six months to abortion up to the point of life, uh, of birth. Some advocating for infanticide after birth. How deep does that go into human reality? What about three years old? What about five years old? We have the elderly, and when suffering is too great, well, then we can end their lives. But what if their suffering begins earlier on? What if the suffering is not physical but psychological? Just where do the categories end if man has authority over life? A nation which does not believe that God is the author of life will take authority over life into their own hands and that's never the sign of a God-fearing nation. And guess what? It's never something that escapes God's judgment. One of the seven things that God hates most in the book of Proverbs is hands that shed innocent blood. Do you think God is blind to that in our nation? He's not. I pray when his judgment comes, the church is ready to offer a defense, to offer the gospel. Because God does not take lightly this kind of abuse of power. And so this king is weak and he's insecure. Verse 20, and at this time Moses was born. He's in focus this morning in our story. And so as Abraham's family expands, this is at once the promise being fulfilled to him, and it's also the thing that caught Egypt's eye. They took notice, and they said, if we do not suppress them, they are going to get us. They're going to take over us. We're going to be on the losing end of history here if we don't suppress this nation. There's one, also, one other incredible fact regarding this 400 years of slavery. Do you know that God first told Abraham, your your people are going to be in slavery for 400 years? In Genesis chapter 15, 16, he tells him exactly why. Because when when God saves Israel out of Egypt, he's also going to bring them to a new land, right? Well, who's living in that land at the time? Do you think it's just empty? Do you think it's just a vacant building? No, there's people who live there. 
They were the Amorites. They lived in Canaan at the time. They, they lived there. So do you think when Israel comes in and says, oh, by the way, God gave us this land, um, can you just move? Do you think they're going to? No, there's going to be war, which is part of the Old Testament story that people are very uncomfortable with. Why is there so much war and violence? Because it's a picture of God's judgment. Do you know why he held Israel in slavery for 400 years? Because that's how long it took the Amorites to get to the place in wickedness that God was ready to judge them. God literally used Israel as an instrument to judge a nation that was wicked and far from him. And we always say, it's like, we have this idea that Israel just went around slaughtering everybody, innocent and guilty alike. Not so. In fact, God used other nations to judge Israel when they were wicked. God judged Israel just as harshly as he judged other nations. In fact, he didn't just judge them for evil practices. He judged them for evil beliefs. When they were wandering around in the wilderness waiting to go into the promised land, when they doubted God's promise, God said, fine, you will die in the wilderness. God judged unbelief. He judged evil practice. And so in in all of this, there's this complexity in history that we cannot possibly grasp unless we believe that God is sovereign. That God knew at the end of this 400 years that he would be ready to judge the Amorites and that he would be just in doing so. And by the same token, the nation that oppressed the Hebrews would also be judged. God is so faithful. He's so faithful to himself to be just to execute justice truly in a way that we cannot possibly fathom. And you know what? His judgment may appear slow. They certainly felt like that way to, to Hebrews, to the Hebrews, didn't it? Like, what is this 400-year period? What is going on here? They may appear delayed. They may appear slow. But I want to share another verse with you. Because God's slowness to judge sin by our standards is God's mercy toward the sinner. Again, we have this notion that God is somehow, he's just the God of free stuff now and he doesn't judge anymore. And, and Peter picks up on this in 2 Peter 3.9. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up. Do you know who he's talking to? He's talking to mockers who would say, where is the promise of God's coming? I thought Jesus was coming back. What's with the slowness? And this is what, like 30, 40 years after he left? They were already thinking, oh, he must not be coming back. Well, he waited another 2,000 years. And do not count his slowness as a light thing. He is being patient in execution of, of, of judgment over sin because he wishes that more men would reach repentance. He withholds judgment as a mercy, not because he's not powerful to do it, not because he can't, not because he's weak or indecisive, or because he doesn't recognize good and evil. Imagine, imagine being God and looking at the earth 
and saying and, and having the, the control to be patient over sin. Friends, one of the greatest questions people ask of Christianity, thinking that it's going to trip us up, is why does a good God allow evil? Do you know how easy that answer is? It's because he's patient. It's because he's good. It's because he has mercy on people that you think he shouldn't have mercy on. His slowness is a kindness to you. Do you notice how whenever people say, why does God allow evil in the world? They're never talking about themselves. They're always talking about the evil of the politicians or the evil of the traffickers or the evil of the drug dealers or the evil of, of the armies. It's never the evil in their own heart. So when people ask, why does God allow evil in the world if he's such a good judge? We ought to respond with, aren't you glad he does? Because today and right now, you have an opportunity to come to this judge on good terms. Because he is not slow in the way that others count slowness. God is a judge. He is patiently waiting for the Amorites to fill up their iniquity. He's not just going to wipe out the Amorites without just cause. And he's also not going to let Egypt oppress the Hebrews without reparation as well. And they faced severe judgment. The ten plagues came through, right? Through Moses. And so I want you to look at this story and now we're going to see how the facts of this story bear out the message of the gospel today. Why? Number three in your outline is because the promise and judgment of God are both fully accomplished in Christ. The judgment and the promise of God are both fully accomplished in Jesus Christ. Again, don't let people tell you this narrative that Jesus is the nice version of God. And the, the mean old judgment God of the Old Testament is he's sort of set aside and now he's relaxed. He's like Jesus now, man. That misses the historic redemptive arc. The stories in the Old Testament are meant to help us understand who Jesus is. It's meant for us to understand what exactly he did and why it matters to us. If we didn't have those stories, the ministry of Jesus Christ would make no sense to us. We need both parts of the story. So how does our Christian faith preserve the message of Moses here? Moses was born in this time of death. He was brought up in Pharaoh's house. He received the wisdom and instruction of the Egyptians. And he was mighty in words and deeds. And we're going to see how God used him in the coming weeks. There's at least two messages here in Moses. And they are so deep and rich. I couldn't, I couldn't bear to skim over it. But how does our faith preserve the message of Moses? Just like Moses, I mentioned this already, Christ was bought, brought forth during a time of slaughter of infant boys. And he was sent to his people to free them from an unrelenting slave master, right? The Israelites at the time thought that their Messiah was going to free them from who? The Romans. Just like the Hebrews were freed from the Egyptians, the modern day, modern for that time, in Jesus' time, the, those Israelites thought, oh, it's going to be just like the Egyptians. God's going to wipe out the Romans and we're going to march in triumphal procession into our promised land. We're going to reestablish our laws, and we're going to reestablish our sovereignty. But who is the unrelenting slave master that Jesus came to save his people from? Sin. 
Sin was that hidden snake in the grass enemy that they totally underestimated. We learn this in Romans chapter 6 exactly. You are a slave to that which you obey. How dramatically do we underestimate sin? It's a slave driver. It enslaves us. You are a slave to that which you obey. How many of us think we have a handle on our sin? And when we give into it, we think, oh, I have control. You are a slave to that which you obey. If you do not rightly identify your slave master, you cannot be freed. You cannot be released from slavery if you will not acknowledge that you have been enslaved. This was the problem with Israel. They thought they were enslaved to the Romans at the time. They were enslaved to sin. This is where Stephen's going with this message. Moses leading Israel to to literal salvation happened so that we would understand Christ. What do I mean by that? Let's see how promise is fulfilled. We've already seen that God promised before the ages began revealed in Christ. Galatians 3 and 4. Sorry, Galatians 4 and 3 and 4 says, When we were children, we were enslaved. But at the fullness of time, God sent his son. What's the remedy to slavery? His son, Jesus Christ. He uses that language so particularly. When we were children, we were enslaved. But at the right time, at the fullness of time, God sent his son. Romans 5 and 6. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. In the same way that the time of promise approached for Abraham's promise, So God had in mind fulfilling the promise to Israel that he would send a savior, a final Messiah to free them in a way that they had never been freed before in order to worship God truly. Remember the woman at the well? She said, oh, uh, some say we should worship on this mountain. Some say we should worship in the temple. What should we do? And Jesus says, a time is coming when you're going to worship God in spirit and in truth. It's not going to be about where you worship. It's going to be about how you worship. God sent his son to free his people to finally worship him rightly. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly while we were still sinners. Luke 9.30. This is so exciting. Have you ever heard that story where Jesus is on the mountain with his disciples? And then he's transfixed, transfigured, and his garments become white. Like, like whiter than any launderer can, can possibly do. And then two men appeared with him, Moses and Elijah. And then they start chatting. They have this, like a professor's talking at a seminary, but to the millionth degree. And, it's, and Luke records for us what they were talking about. And our Bibles don't translate it the way it's literally in the Greek, but it says that they were talking and they were speaking about his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Do you know what that word departure is in the Greek? Exodus. They were discussing the exodus that Jesus was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. So in the first place, this, the exodus that Moses led the Hebrews out of Egypt into the promised land, Jesus comes to the promised land, to Jerusalem, and he leads an exodus from Jerusalem to God. How the redemptive ark of God is being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So that's how the promise is fulfilled. What about judgment? John 3, 9. John records for us that this is the judgment, that the light came into the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. That's judgment. Anytime sin is exposed, that's judgment. When Christ comes, he exposes darkness. And because of that, we know that God is aware of sin and judging it. Jesus also 
in those early chapters. says that I did not come to this world to condemn it, but to save it. Or I did not come to this earth to judge the world, but to save it. John 12, 32, I need to read this one for you because it's another mention of how judgment is present in the ministry of Jesus Christ. John 12, 32. Go there if you can, if you can find it quickly and, and have a pen and underline this. What is the judgment? Jesus answered, uh, This voice has come not for your sake, but mine. Verse 31, Now is the judgment of the world. So he's approaching his death on the cross, and he says to them, Now is the judgment of the world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out, and when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So in Christ... When he's approaching the cross, he says to his listeners, this is the judgment of the world. I'm going to the cross. And he says the ruler of this earth is going to be cast out. In other words, the death of Jesus Christ is serving notice to the principalities of evil that their house is coming down. The house of sin, the house of Satan is coming down. He is bound. He is controlled. He has been subverted by the message and the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. The cross is judgment against the kingdom of darkness. You know, the first time when Jesus came into Jerusalem, he was riding a donkey and he suffered for sin. But Hebrews chapter 9 tells us that he's only doing that once. When he comes back a second time, he's not coming to deal with sin. That's already done. The message of mercy and, and, and repentance will be over when he comes a second time. Second time he comes, he's going to come riding a white horse. He's going to have a flaming sword as a tongue, and his eyes are going to be flaming fire. And he's going to judge. He's going to judge. All mankind will appear before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. Romans 15.4 says this, Everything that was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. So can we embrace and believe all of the history of the Old Testament? What is Stephen saying to the leaders? You need to believe this in order to understand how you can be saved, how you can be right with God. You need to understand these stories. So can we believe them and be assured in what we believe about Jesus Christ? Does our affirmation and belief in the Old Testament and the New affirm and, and, and uphold everything we believe about Christ? What hope do we find? It says that by the encouragement of the Scriptures we might find hope. What do we find? Colossians 1.19 says, In Jesus Christ the fullness of God was pleased to dwell which means that God, in all of his mercy, in all of his salvation, in all of his redemption, in all of his judgment, in all of his holiness, was revealed in Jesus Christ. The gospel is the full-blooded promise of God in Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 1 says this, that through his glory and excellence you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world. Same language of escaping corruption, escaping slavery. The promise of God is that we would partake in his nature, having escaped the corruption of sin. The gospel also addresses sin in all of its forms. 
Those who are in Christ will see their sin judged in the body of Christ. Isaiah chapter 53 says that by his wounds we are healed. By his wounds which bore the wrath of God against our sin, we are healed. What does Romans 11.22 teach us about the gospel of Jesus Christ? Note then the kindness and severity of God. Kindness towards those who have fallen. Sorry, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness toward you provided you continue in his kindness. So my friends, the gospel is the fullness of God's redemptive plan. There is nothing outside of Jesus Christ. Hear this. There is nothing outside of Jesus Christ which provides hope, which provides an answer for sin in the world, which provides eternal life and all of the promises that God has laid out. God, in 2 Corinthians, we learn that all the promises of God, all of them are yes and amen in Christ. There is, God has no other plan. He has not revealed the fullness of himself in anything or anyone but Jesus Christ. It's crazy to talk about how, you know, what, what can we learn from other faiths? I mean, how, how can we shed some of the offensive parts of our gospel? Because unless we preach that the gospel is the only way, people cannot be saved because God has not revealed another plan. When Peter says that, God has delayed judgment for mercy. He reminds us that today is the day of salvation. The writer of Hebrews says, as long as today is today, stir each other up to believe. See that no one is hardened by the deceitfulness of sin because now is the time of mercy. When God comes back in Jesus Christ, it is not the time of mercy. Now is. So our ministry of the gospel rests on this fact that the promises of God are sure in Jesus Christ and that he is also a judge in Jesus Christ. We happen to be living in this time of mercy and of salvation. So embrace Jesus Christ and go on in hope and go on in security knowing that your sin will not be judged at some later time. If you are in Christ, your sin is dealt with. Your sin is already dealt with. The judgment that you deserved has been placed on Jesus Christ and you are clean. But go on recognizing that there is a fixed day in history in the future where Jesus will come back. This period is not just lasting forever in endless loops. There will be a definite day in the same way that the day of promise approached for Abraham. The day of promise of the return of Christ is also approaching. It's coming. And that that period that we have between now and then is fixed and it is decreasing by a quantity of one day each time you wake up. So Paul says in Ephesians, make the most of your time for the days are evil. Be ambassadors for Christ. Live in assurance by the endurance and um, exhortation of the scriptures. We can have hope. So live in hope, live in victory. The gospel has given you the fullness of Christ and your sin is dealt with. And so be ambassadors for Christ and use each day as a, as a witness to the goodness of God. We're going to close in one song. Let me pray before we do.